A reading from the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 2, starting with verse 23. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The word of the Lord. A reading from the second letter to Timothy, chapter four, starting with verse 16. For, am I, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 18, starting with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Our readings this week provoke a question in us. What is it in this life that will last? What is it that we do that will matter, that will last into eternity? Does anything we do matter? Um, There's certain pockets of our culture that tend to act like really nothing you do in this world really matters, maybe save one thing. Or does everything matter? Is everything in this life critically important because this is all we have? If there are certain things that matter and certain things that don't, how do we find them? How do we identify those? How do we recognize those things? Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Joel. And in the previous part of the book, Joel has described two locust invasions. One is in the past and one is to come. And this is really tricky with Joel because we can't quite tell whether he's talking about literal locust invasions or whether there's something metaphorical going on there. Were they actually overrun by locusts? I mean, that was common. That was popular in this part of the world. Or is this a metaphor for the Babylonian armies? Because they had experienced that as well, the overrunning of the Babylonian armies. It's possible that one of them, the old one, is literal, that they were overcome by, by locusts. And then another one is metaphorical, the one to come, but we don't know. It's possible that what happened is there was a locust invasion. And even though that's a regular natural disaster at this time, it triggered some past pain that Israel had experienced in their life, and it had caused them to question some things. Uh, John Golden Gay says that this book speaks of how trauma, even generational and systemic trauma, can impact the everyday lives of people. So the experience of a locust invasion has brought back the trauma of invasion by a foreign army. This has happened in Israel's history over and over again. So even the locusts are a relatively small thing compared to an invading army. Quote from John Golden Gay, when the people re-experience trauma, even a trivial experience can trigger a reaction like the one caused by the original experience. Sometimes today we call this PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that, that something's triggered by a past trauma, even a generational trauma in, an, in our experience in life. The locust invasion here is so significant that it's referred to as the day of the Lord. So what happens is as the people are in the midst of their pain, they're called to reorient their trust. They're called to a place of dependence and a place of um, repentance. Now, of course, not all trauma is in any way self-inflicted. But this seems to be the case here, that they have turned away from God and it's led them to destruction. And in the midst of that, they do repent. And in response to their repentance, God says through the prophet, they're to rejoice, they're to change their frame of mind, they're to turn their sorrow to joy. This is often our calling in the midst of pain, not to ignore the pain, but to reorient our hope. When we point ourselves in the direction of God's faithfulness, we are not assured that nothing bad will ever happen to us again but we are assured that that thing will not have the final word. It's not the end of the story. God says that he will repay them for the years the locusts have eaten. He has heard their prayer and he has said yes to it. He will respond. 
The people can rejoice because it's as if God has already restored them. God is so faithful to his word. He's so faithful to what he said he's going to do that they can even know now, just because he says it, it's as if he's already done it. He will restore them. He will bring his divine presence among them. The danger was great, but God is greater still. And then we have what's often called the divine no. In verse 26, God says, never again will my people be shamed. That's said again in verse 27, never again will my people be shamed. Again, God, not circumstances or trauma, God will have the final word, never again. This is the commitment that God makes to Israel. Though he was not at fault, God was not at fault, he says he will never allow them to go through what they went through again. Now, verses 28 through 32, if you're like, if any of you are like me and you spent time and were formed by the Pentecostal or charismatic traditions, these verses were very um, formative to us, very important to us. So it, it says, God says he will pour out God's spirit on all flesh, verse 28. The word flesh is particularly interesting. Um, the, the Lord will pour out his spirit on all flesh, all physicality. Um, Tertullian was a writer and a church father in the uh, second and third century, and he wrote a book called On the Resurrection of the Flesh. And he was particularly writing to this heretic group. There was this one heretic group that was really popular at the time, and they claimed that all physical things were created by a lesser God. All right. So everything physical in this world, everything created, our, our bodies, the dirt, all that stuff was created by a lesser God called a demiurge. And because of this, all physicality, human bodies, everything is considered suspect at best, but probably worthless. That's what this heretic group said. On this basis, the heretics said that the flesh of a human being could never really rise again. So we shouldn't hope for the resurrection of the dead, that, that resurrection is kind of like the soul reawakening. That's really what resurrection is. Well, Tertullian says, no, no, if you read the scriptures, the scriptures value, they ennoble physicality. Physicality matters. And yes, there are some places in scripture where it seems to reject the flesh, okay? But you can't build a whole thing like that because there's also places like our reading today, and he pointed to our reading today in Joel, which God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. I've not given up on physicality. Physical bodies and people really matter, and I'm going to use them in the world to bring about my kingdom. So it's not physicality that we see rejected. God's created a good world, and he loves our world. Rather, it's flesh when it turns to things outside, it becomes corruptible. That is to be resisted. The good news is that God's final word is always restoration. Even that which has been broken by sin can be restored. So that's verse 32 is so important. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation, restoration, that's the final word. Catholic social worker Dorothy Day is quoted as saying, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. What does that mean? Everyday things matter. The real, physical, everyday stuff is important. Um, the spirit has been poured out on all flesh, the real bodies of real people. So we don't have spiritual things over here that are important and physical daily things, everyday stuff that doesn't really matter. It all matters. It's all important. 
And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is important and is significant. In fact, I want to encourage you this week. I, um, I rediscovered uh, a great book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Talked with uh, Tricia about this. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren is a priest. And it's a great book cover. It's got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the front of it. <laughs> and basically what she has is prayers for doing everyday stuff. So it's prayers for making your bed and prayer for making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and brushing your teeth and different things like that. And the idea is that everyday stuff matters. Okay, I'm gonna stop that. That's off, off the notes today. Okay, so what happens? When the spirit is poured out on all flesh, it leads to prophecy. That's what this says. Sons and daughters, male and female servants, young and old people. So in other words, when the spirit is poured out on all flesh, all people begin to speak the words of God is what it's saying. And it's a way of saying everybody, everywhere, everyone, but it places particular emphasis on those who have been left out, those who are not expected to speak for God, young people and old people, right? Servants, like these were not expected at the time to speak for God, but the spirit has been poured out on all flesh. The Hebrew word for spirit is also the word for breath or wind. The idea is those are things that are outside the bounds of our direct control, so yes, you can control your breathing. You have some sense of control, but it's actually an involuntary thing for a human being. So breath is something that happens without you saying, body, you need to breathe, okay? It goes, runs in the background. Wind is something you really can't control. It, it, it moves and it works. So these are things outside of our control. Joel may be writing at a time where it was difficult to hear the voice of God. And he's saying that something is coming. God's silence will not continue forever. And you won't be able to drum it up or make it happen. This is God's spirit on you, not your initiative. But with God's spirit, with the pouring out of God's spirit, also comes judgment. The spirit certainly comforts us, counsels us, teaches us, encourages us. But the spirit also convicts of sin and judges because the Spirit comes to set the world right. For Christians, this reading is often being fulfilled, seen as being fulfilled in um, Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost story. When Peter quotes this to describe this crazy thing that's happening with tongues of fire, people speaking other languages, all of this kind of stuff, he quotes Joel, uh, Joel here. In Peter's reading, there's two important themes that come together. So the Spirit's for all, the Spirit's for everybody, and there's judgment on injustice. Now think for a minute about the situation of the day. The marginalized community in Joel has been ravaged by locusts and then by Babylonian armies. They're a minority community that's been devastated. And to this community, God says, I will bring judgment on the enemies. I will set things right and you will be vindicated. I have not given up on you. Now think about the community in the first century, the Christians, the small minority community, and Jesus was killed by the governing authorities. And then he rose from the dead. And he's saying to them, he's saying, the governing authorities don't have the final word. Those who killed Jesus don't have the final word. You will be vindicated. You are part of my story here and now. So when we hear about these like you know, the sky turned dark, the you know, moon has gone away, all of this like apocalyptic imagery. It's not talking about actual astrological phenomenon. It's not blood moons or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. 
but it's talking about this big political overthrowing that would happen where those who seem to be in charge are not really in charge, that there's something deeper than what you can see. And yet God's people have nothing to fear. They will be kept safe. Verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In fact, that phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, became a synonym for Christian in the first century. So they were the people who called on the name of the Lord. And that was what Christians were called. Paul finds in this passage from Joel a basis for the inclusion of Gentiles into the family of God. If the Spirit's been poured out on all flesh and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, everybody, no matter what their background is, is invited into this story. Okay. Let's look at 2 Timothy here. So in, our, in this New Testament reading, Paul is writing to Timothy as Paul is nearing the end of his life. And he says he's being poured out as a libation. I wonder if you've ever heard of the practice of pouring one out for the homies. You familiar with this one? I know that I've never sounded more like I grew up in the suburbs and I'm a white guy than I did just now. But um, this is often associated with the 80s and 90s rap culture, but it's an ancient practice, okay? The pouring out of liquid as an offering has been seen throughout history, and it's a symbol of death. So the ancient Egyptians did this, the Africans did this, the Greeks, the Hebrews, they all practiced some form of when someone died in remembrance of them, pouring out liquid and saying, may their life be an offering to the God or to the gods, so Paul believes that his life, even the extinguishing of his life, is an offering to God. And this is the radical way that Christians are called to live, as if our whole lives are an offering to God, poured out to God. Now, many of us have spent time in churches where we talk a lot about being filled up with God, which is totally appropriate and is all throughout Scripture. We want to be filled up with the Spirit, and that language is used throughout Scripture. But what if we thought of our lives and ourselves as a gift to be poured out? So after that, Paul then switches metaphors. He does that a lot. Instead of a libation being poured out, Paul then speaks of a fight that he's fought and a race that he's finished. Now, remember, he's writing from prison, and he says that he's run the race, and now there's a crown of righteousness waiting for him. So, you know, you can put two and two together here. He's talking about a race, and then somebody re receives a crown at the end of the race. He calls it a crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness means it's actually different than that. It's not that he's the one winner who ends all of this, but the crown, the victory that he wins is righteousness. It's that God declares that he's in the right. So just as God promised to the people in Joel and then in Acts, he promises here, uh, the promise to Paul is you will be vindicated. No matter what the world says about you right now, this will be proven true. Now, if we think about rewards in the kingdom of God, it's important to look at this. Um, in God's kingdom, rewards that we receive are organically connected to actions. So think about it this way. If a, for, if, if a student um, wants to study a foreign language and they're studying a foreign language and their parent says, hey, if you get to a certain point in this language, if you learn this language, I'll buy you a new bike. That is one type of reward, right? It's an external reward that if, okay, if you learn this language, you're gonna get a new bike. There's another type of reward if a student is going to study abroad and they're going to live abroad for a period of time and they learn that language in order to thrive in that new world, in order to thrive in that place. That's a reward in and of itself, right? 
It's an internal reward or an intrinsic reward, that that reward becomes part of the study or the action itself. Both are rewards, but they're different kinds. In the first instance, the deed, the action, and the reward are not connected. But in the second one, the reward is received in a way that's natural. So we're not living a life poured out to God so that he'll give us the spiritual equivalent of a new bike. That's not the point here. It's not that there's going to be these extra, man, going to be so rich in heaven because I did all these really good deeds. That's not how rewards work in the kingdom of God. In fact, I spent a lot of my life around Christians who were doing just that. They would do good deeds because they thought, man, my mansion is going to be really big in heaven right? That's what it's going to be, this external reward. Or even rewards on this earth, like, you know, a check in the mail. I had some friends, man, Christian college world is just crazy, but friends uh, in Christian college that thought, gosh, I'm going to get a much better spouse if I just do a lot of really good deeds. God's going to give me a much better, you know, spouse to marry or something like that. Well, I don't, anyway, what does that even mean? But a kingdom of God reward looks quite different from superficial rewards. They're always naturally connected with God's desire for the world. So they're always naturally others oriented. Kingdom of God reward means when you live into the kingdom of God, you're going to begin to see the fruit of that reality. And that's going to be so much better reward. Paul writes this crown of righteousness this legal term, righteousness declared in the right. And the idea is that no matter who has turned against him, the suffering he's faced from the empire, the rejection he's faced from his friends and from fellow Christians, he will one day be declared in the right, and that's all that matters. When we think about a crown, um, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, in weddings, they have this beautiful tradition where the priest places a crown on the head of the bride and the groom. I always thought this was so cool and blesses them. And in doing this, the priest says three times, the servant of God, groom's name, is crowned unto the handmaiden of God, bride's name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. And these crowns speak of two things. It's a symbol of the crowns we will receive in heaven, where we are justified, declared in the right, ruling with God. But then secondly, it's to signify that the bride and groom have become the queen and king of a newly created family, ruling with God even here. It reminds me of the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the, poor, the four Pevensey children receive their crowns. It gives the reader this image of a future reign of God's children in his kingdom. And Aslan, the savior figure in the story, says to the four children, Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve. So these crowns that are received are not crowns of status over and against other people. We don't get jewels in our crown or bigger mansions to show that we're better or more accomplished than others. Rather, the crowning is the declaration that God has done something. It is the reestablishment of the human vocation of what human beings have been called to do all along, to rule and reign with Christ. But this is always trusting in God's grace, that he has given us whatever we need, and even when we fail, God lovingly nudges us back toward this vocation to which we are called. So here we have Paul in prison, reflecting on the race he's run and the crown he will receive, his life has looked like a failure in the world's eyes. 
And reflecting on it all, Paul says, God is the righteous judge. Paul, up until now, has faced a lot of unrighteous judges, but their verdicts don't matter. The only verdict that matters is what God says about him and his life. So I wonder if we might pause and reflect on what are the messages that we have received and internalized about who we are. What, have the, what are the narratives we've believed that the world's judges have said about us? Maybe it's been something that's been passed down from your parents or from generation to generation about who you are, how you're defined. Maybe it's something through the culture. Modern culture tells us we're not anything until we've achieved enough. Maybe that's a message. Modern consumerism tells us we're not anything until we've accumulated enough. What are those false messages? It is so critically important as Christians that we're reminded we are not in this life for worldly success or fame or approval. We're running a different race. We're receiving a different crown. And every force in the world is going to push against that, against this better way. And even as we face all kinds of challenges, God has been faithful and God will be faithful. Paul then reflects and just says, no one has supported him in this. He's been abandoned. And what's his response? Don't hold it against them. It's similar to what Jesus said on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Paul says that he had strength because God stood by him, not because other people stood by him. There may be many times in our life where we have to stand alone, where there are other people that it seems like nobody else is with us and God is the only one with us. But in those moments, we can trust that we will be vindicated. I think one of the biggest hurdles to living a life of faithfulness, to running a race with perseverance, is comparison and concerned about others, either what others are doing or what others think of us. We know from Paul's letters that he fought this throughout his ministry. But Paul chose a different route from the other teachers of the day. He chose the root of the kingdom of God, which Jesus says is like a mustard seed and like the person who chooses the end of the table instead of the best seat. To the world, it looks small and insignificant, but it's the better way. I want to just briefly look at our gospel reading today. We have this story of Jesus telling a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Each of them go up to the temple to pray. We're told who the audience is, says the audience are some who were confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. The Pharisee stands by himself and prays, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I'm not like robbers and evildoers or adulterers or even like that tax collector because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Based on his prayer, this particular Pharisee was probably an extreme example a Pharisee, so we need to be really careful not to make a stereotype out of him or to assume that this is all Pharisees. No one in the first century was really uh, required to fast twice a week, and no one was required to tithe on everything. Just to get a sense of what tithing on everything was, we, we think in terms of giving our money as tithing. But in this ancient world, it was everything you bought or everything you received. So, so if you were to tithe on everything, it would be going through your spice cabinet and pulling out all like 10% of the thyme and giving it, or 10% of the salt and giving it. So this guy's saying, I tithe on everything. I've gone above and beyond. So he's a bit of an extreme caricature here. 
There's no reason to assume, though, that he's not sincere in the story. His prayer is first a prayer of thanksgiving. So he's saying he's genuinely thankful that he's not doing evil things. I mean, that's a good thing. Um, Amy Jill uh, Levin, who's a professor of New Testament here at Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School, she says that this prayer is similar to, but for the grace of God, there go I. Like it's, Lord, thank you that I haven't fallen this path. It's a prayer of thankfulness at first. And also nothing in this reading indicates he's a hypocrite. Sometimes some Pharisees are called hypocrites in the Gospels. But, but he's living an upright life and he's not lying about it, okay? Yet, here's his fatal flaw. The repetition of the word I gives us a clue. The focus is on his own work and on what he has done. In some ways, the Pharisee here would be a hero in American culture. He's the self-made man. He's done everything right in his own eyes. We love the self-made hero. We love the one who doesn't need anybody else but themselves. The text even said he stood by himself. So there's an idea that he, he stands apart to distinguish himself from the other. His pride has caused him to separate from others. And he takes the opportunity to declare, I'm part of the right group. Thank you that I'm not like other people, not like him. And yet, as Jesus will say later in Luke's gospel, no one is good but God alone. The tax collector's prayer is quite different from the Pharisees. The reading tells us that the tax collector stood at a distance. So the Pharisee and the tax collector are both set apart, right? But the Pharisee stands apart out of his pride. The tax collector, we believe, stands at a distance because of his shame. That he, it wouldn't be right to call him an outcast because in the broader society, he actually has more privilege than even the Pharisee might have. But he's been despised and rejected by the religious community at the time. And so he's shamed for that reason. He's been collaborating against, um, against the people on behalf of the empire. And he's been cheating his own people. He's been accused to be a, being a traitor. We're told that he kept his eyes lowered, that he beat his breast, a sign of repentance, and finally he cries out for mercy. The tax collector knows he can't play the comparison game because he has nothing on his own to stand on. He has nothing to celebrate. He has no reason to be thankful. The little secret of this story is that neither the Pharisee nor the tax collector has a leg to stand on. Tithing and fasting are good things. The things associated with being a tax collector are not good things in this culture. But that's not the point here. The point is when the Pharisee uses his piety to think of himself as better than the tax collector, he will not be justified because that's not how declaring in the right works. Yet even the tax collector who acknowledges his sin and his shortcoming will be justified. The tax collector doesn't use a whole lot of fancy words. He doesn't celebrate his own piety because he doesn't have any piety. Rather, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is the posture of prayer. God, I need you. He is asking for God to turn his anger away from him. The desert fathers and mothers advocated a prayer that we still pray today called the Jesus Prayer. It goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I always encourage people as they're just starting to learn how to pray or learning what to pray, that you can say that prayer any time of the day. 
If you don't even have time to say the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's this posture of recognizing that every breath in our lungs, every move with our bodies is rooted in the mercies of God, the God who creates, who sustains, who redeems, and who restores. In the end, Jesus affirms the posture of the tax collector, saying that he went away justified. Because justification comes not from our badges of piety, but from God. Jesus concludes the parable with these words, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In all of our readings, we're reminded of what will last, what will be vindicated in the end, what will prove true. Well, we're reminded that God's faithfulness will last. We're promised that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, a promise fulfilled at Pentecost. God's not repelled by humanity, by fleshiness. God desires to dwell in our midst, speaking, working, judging, and healing every brokenness. God will remain faithful, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul reminds us that even as his life is poured out, he's promised rewards which are way different from the rewards of this world. They're not precious jewels that can be cashed in or make look more sparkly than everybody else. Instead, when we submit ourselves to God's lordship, when our words and hearts center on God rather than on I, we're learning to speak the language of heaven. And in the end, what other people value will not matter. God is the ultimate judge and our only rescue. Comparison robs us, not only of joy, but of focus and of mission. And I want to say this, this doesn't mean that our good deeds will not last into God's new world. I believe there are some rewards in this life that are organically connected to what we do now. So every act of faith, hope, and love is kind of like the process of building a house of God's kingdom that will last forever. But we need to think of it this way. We're not the builders. We're not the architects, we're not the uh, contractors, we're not the people who construct the house. We're like the eight-year-old assistant who's called in to help dad build and maybe hold a hammer. We get to participate. Our acts of faith, hope, and love are part of God's kingdom, but he's the one who's building and we're invited into the process. We're finally reminded in our gospel reading that humble trust that rests not in our own accomplishments or what other people say. Humble trust will last into God's new world. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Whatever we do in this life that's rooted in faith, which is empty-handed trust, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whatever we do that's rooted in hope, the longing for God's kingdom to, be, to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever we do in love in the way of Jesus, that's what's gonna last. And that's all that will last. So finally, God is building something in our midst. A new world has dawned and is being formed. We can trust that the rain is already here. God's spirit has been poured out. May we run the race well. May we be willing to be poured out for the sake of the kingdom, even if it means everybody else abandons us. And may we constantly look to the righteous judge and anticipate the reward of his kingdom where all is made right.
Amen.